Welcome to Humans in History, the bite-sized birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive, lasting impact. Today, December 25th, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of Joseph Boulogne, le Chevalier de Saint-Georges. He was born on Christmas Day in 1745. Joseph was born 10 years before and 50 miles away from Alexander Hamilton. And although their paths would never cross, their parallel lives are both very remarkable in a lot of ways and very similar in a lot of ways. Both came from traumatic upbringings and illegitimate circumstances. Both were brilliant in their respective careers. Both would play major parts in major wars and both left a legacy that was largely forgotten until recently. Hamilton owes a tip of the cap to Ron Chernow for writing the ultimate bio on him and a second nod to Lin-Manuel Miranda for making the guy on the face of the $10 bill a household name. But no one has done this for Joseph, and this is shocking. He was the best swordsman in all of France, allegedly only losing one bout. He was the first African classical composer in Europe who regularly conducted and performed for Marie Antoinette. He was a colonel in the French Revolution, and he was the darling of Parisian society. His life reads like a play, but for brevity's sake, it will have to read like a podcast today. Joseph was born on Basse-Terre, an island in the archipelago of French-run Guadeloupe. He was born to 16-year-old Anne, also known as Nenon, a Senegalese slave owned by George de Boulogne St. George and his wife Elizabeth. And as was extremely common, yet no less horrific, Joseph's father was Anne's enslaver, George. George was a wealthy plantation owner whose family lineage could be traced to the illustrious Boulogne family of Italy, namesake of the city. A former army major, George spent his days reaping in the profits from his massive sugar and coffee empire and apparently impregnating enslaved teenagers. George and Elizabeth had only one child together, a daughter named Elizabeth, in 1740, and five years later, her half-brother Joseph would arrive on Christmas Day. What was remarkable was that not only did George acknowledge that Joseph was his son, he allowed him to use his surname, and Elizabeth was apparently fine with providing for her husband's illegitimate son, as they would pay for his education throughout his childhood. Joseph grew up with the best tutors, and he learned to play violin as a little boy, according to some sources, from the whip-wielding plantation overseer, who would have probably taken a much different approach to the child had he not been George's son. George was actually awarded the title of Gentil Homme Ordinaire de la Chambre des Rois, or Gentleman of the King's Chamber, in 1757, but due to his African blood, Joseph would never inherit his father's titles of nobility. So how did Joseph get from the Caribbean to France? It's a bit hazy. One version has George taking Joseph overseas when he was seven, dropping him off at a boarding school and then returning to Guadeloupe, only to return to France yet again two years later with Joseph's mother, Nanon, and setting up a home with his enslaved woman and their son in the Saint-Germain neighborhood at 49 Rue Saint-André-de-Art. No mention of where Elizabeth was during this time. Another version calls into question Joseph's birth year, as various documents have it as 1739 and 1748. It's a massive gap. This account also says that Joseph was born while George was in exile, hiding out after a fight with a man, which led to him getting a nose injury that became gangrenous and led to the man's death. George was accused of murder and hung in effigy, but pardoned later for unknown reasons. 
This same source states that George, Nanon, Elizabeth, Joseph, and Little Elizabeth, the whole dysfunctional family, crossed over together and set up one big unconventional home. Kind of like a Parisian 18th century Brady Bunch, but Alice is an enslaved mistress. So what exactly was the home dynamic even like, though? Like, was Nanon treated like another wife? Was she treated as a slave with no rights, a servant with some? Was she the primary caretaker for Joseph, or was Elizabeth? Did she care for Joseph's half-sister as well? Did Elizabeth treat Nanon well or poorly? It's primarily speculation at this point, but George clearly had enough affection for the boy to remove him from the Caribbean, where his life would have been rife with racism and brutality. He paid for the best schooling for Joseph, and he kept him in the same home with both his mother and his father, and his father's wife. So titles George couldn't give Joseph, but a stellar education he could. At the age of 13, Joseph was enrolled in the prestigious Tessier de la Bossière's Royal Technical School of Fencing and Horsemanship, and by 15, he was the best swordsman in the school, and he could even beat the teachers. Joseph's skill proved handy when a fencing master named Alexander Picard began to mock Joseph in public, calling the teenager Bossière's mulatto. So a fencing match was set up with heavy betting on both sides, which basically boiled down to a pack of pro-slavery people on Picard's side and a bunch of anti-slavery people on the other side. Joseph won, and it was a powerful move for him. Not just for him, actually, just for like race relations in the city in general. And George was so proud of his son for standing up for himself and winning that he bought him a handsome horse and a buggy. So upon graduation, Joseph was made an officer of the king's bodyguard and a chevalier. By this point, everyone that met him knew he was something special. His mother was described as one of the most beautiful women to ever come out of Africa, and Joseph was blessed with his mother's beauty and his father's energy and self-confidence. There are a few remaining paintings of Joseph, but those that do exist capture a light-skinned man with impossibly high cheekbones, beautiful full lips, a regal nose, and large soulful eyes. He was small in stature, about 5'6", and he was very slim, but he was the fastest swordsman in all of Paris, if not all of France. He is most commonly depicted in the fashion of the day, powdered wig and white cravat and all that. Joseph at this time was also enrolled in riding school, and he soon became as good a horseman as he was a swordsman. He also found time to become a masterful swimmer who would challenge himself to swim across the Seine using only one arm. He was also an accomplished skater, runner, dancer, and one of the best marksmen in Paris as well. All this combined to make him quite the bon vivant. Parisians were intrigued by this exotic young man, and he quickly became the most popular guy in Paris. He was flooded with invitations every day, and having him at a party made it a success. Every salon, every ball, and every boudoir door opened up to this dashing young man. He was charming and witty, easygoing, smart, and when he was challenged to a duel by the few racist men that he encountered along the way, he was usually able to charm his way out of it, knowing full well that he would have won regardless. Once, when he was slapped by a violinist, he refused to duel because he had too much respect for the man's music. In 1764, George made out his will, leaving Joseph an 8,000 franc annuity and a pension for Nanon. When George died a decade later, that annuity went to his only legitimate child, Elizabeth. Paperwork regarding this has Nenon signing a different last name than Joseph to help conceal his African roots. Joseph's journey from child who played violin on a plantation to one of the greatest violinists and composers of the day is an opaque one. No one can agree who he studied under, but what we do know is that when he first appeared in 1769 as a violinist in the orchestra of Le Concert d'Amateurs, This was a huge surprise. 
to his Parisian pals because they only knew him as the charming, swashbuckling, romancing, sword-fighting guy about town. And by 1772, he was playing as a soloist and blowing people away with his original compositions. It pretty much seemed that there was nothing he couldn't do. His performances were said to be so rapturous as to cause much swooning among the women of the audience. The concert to amateurs went through a bit of a rough patch when it was disbanded due to lack of funding. So this playwright named Pierre Caron de Beaumarchais began to solicit donations from former patrons to keep the orchestra afloat. Pierre was this playwright, watchmaker, inventor, musician, diplomat, horticulturalist, publisher, arms dealer, spy, and he concocted this scheme where he would fill ships with military aid to be sent off to America in their fight against the British, and in return, the Americans would fill the ships with cotton and tobacco, which Pierre could sell upon its return to England and raise funds to keep the orchestra afloat. It was a great plan, but the Americans didn't fulfill their side of the bargain. They accepted the aid from England, they refused to acknowledge it as a trade, and they sent the ships back empty. So Joseph gave up on Pierre's wild scheme, and he turned to the immensely wealthy and powerful Philippe de Orleans, Duc de Chartres, who was an admirer of Joseph's work. With the Duke's help, the orchestra got a rebranding makeover. It became Le Concert Olympique, and it began to play again in the Palace Royale. Because Marie Antoinette was known to stop by on the spur of the moment, Joseph and the others had to wear court attire at all times, velvet outfits trimmed with lace and gold braid with plumed hats and plumed swords. Joseph took to music the way he took to pretty much everything else in his life. He made it look easy, and he did it with great passion. He composed six operas, a symphony, eight violin concertos, and dozens of pieces of chamber music, sonatas, and string quartet pieces. But it wasn't a good time for music all the way around, though, as the Paris Opera was really struggling. And in 1776, it was actually suggested that Joseph take over. And it looked like this was going to happen until three women in the opera wrote to Marie Antoinette that their, quote, delicate conscience would not allow them to submit to the will of a mulatto. And this put Marie Antoinette's who really loved Joseph a lot in a tough spot. So Joseph graciously withdrew his name from consideration and Marie Antoinette from then on held her musicals in her salon at Versailles, inviting only an intimate circle and a handpicked selection of musicians, including Joseph, who would accompany her on the violin while she played the fourth piano. This episode put a cap on Joseph's dream of being in a prestigious musical leadership position in Paris, but it didn't stop him from composing or playing. And by 1785, he actually decided to leave instrumental music for good and focus entirely on composing operas. His first opera, Ernestine, went over like a lead balloon due to the weak libretto, which back then was more important to the audience than the actual music, which the audience really liked. So, Enter the beautiful Charlotte Jean Berard de la Haye de la Rue, mistress to the French prince Louis Philippe de Orleans, Duke of Orleans, aka the Fat. So Charlotte had a private theater that was one of the most exclusive musical salons in town, and she snatched up Joseph as its new director. So Joseph finally had this plush gig. It allowed him to live in a massive wing of her mansion. And during his stay there, he was roommates with Mozart, who spent two months under the same roof while in town for his mother's funeral. Joseph's second opera, The Chasse, was an enormous success. Audiences went crazy, and it looked like his career was rolled out before him like a red carpet. Then the fat man died. Louis-Philippe de Orleans, Duke of Orleans, died at the age of 60 in 1785. 
Charlotte was his morganic wife, meaning that they were of unequal social rank. In this case, the fat was a prince and she was a commoner who happened to be smart and gorgeous. So the king forbade her from mourning for the late Louis Philippe. Heartbroken, she closed her theater, shut down her mansion, and she moved into a convent. Suddenly, Joseph was both out of a job and homeless. But thankfully, the new Duke of Orleans, Philippe, not to be confused with dead Louis Philippe, stepped in and gave him a flat in the Palais Royal. During his time there, Joseph got sucked into the politics of Philippe's circle, who, as the head of the Orleanist party, was the staunchest critic of absolute monarchy. Philippe, a devout Anglophile, was bosom buddies with George, Prince of Wales, who was waiting on the sidelines for his father, George III, to complete his slide into mental illness so he could take the throne. Philippe's side project at the time was reconstructing the Palais Royal, which left the orchestra with no home and Joseph once again in a bad financial way. The Prince of Wales had often heard of the legendary fencer and composer and wanted to meet Joseph, so Philippe arranged for Joseph to sail to London to work on his operas under the patronage of the Prince of Wales, under the careful eye of Jacques-Pierre Bressot de Warville, his chief of staff. Bressot's hidden agenda for allowing the composer to come over was his desire to use Joseph as a point of contact with fellow abolitionists in London and figure out what they thought about Bressot's plan to start an abolitionist society called Friends of the Blacks, based on the current anti-slavery movement that was gaining momentum in England. In London, Joseph stayed with a fencing master and his son, Domenico and Henry Angelo, who he had met years before in Paris. And the Angelos set up a bunch of fencing matches in front of the cream of British society, including the Prince of Wales. One fencing partner of Joseph's during this time was the larger-than-life Charles Genevieve Louis-Auguste-André-Timothy de Ion de Beaumont, commonly known as Le Chevalier de Ion. Le Chevalier de Ion was a diplomat and a spy and a master fencer who spent the first 49 years of his life living as a man and the last 33 years living as a woman. Joseph met the Chevalier de Ion during this latter part, which led to him fencing the Chevalier de Ion while he was wearing a massive black dress and a wig. So rumor has it that Joseph actually allowed Le Chevalier de Ion to get a strike on him as he gallantly would allow a woman to win any match. So sidebar, the Chevalier de Ion's life was a really fascinating one. He was accepted by French society as an openly LGBTQ, possibly transvestite, possibly transgender person. And upon his deathbed, he was found to be intersexed. He had fully formed male organs and fully formed breasts, even though he lived his whole life claiming to have been born a female. And my apologies for using the he pronoun. I don't know which pronoun he'd want me to use. So... Anyways, this um, interaction between Joseph and the Chevalier de Ion was actually captured in a 1787 painting by Abbe Alexandre Auguste Robineau. It's a really fabulous painting, and I'm going to put it up in our stories on our Instagram page so you can get a, a look at it. While in London, Joseph also had uh, his portrait painted, and he spent a lot of time writing and performing new music, too. But he got restless and he went back to Paris, but he found the streets there filled with a scent of impending revolution. His old friend and benefactor Philippe had overseen the construction of new theaters throughout the city while Joseph was gone. So Philippe at this point was being heavily promoted as an alternative to the crumbling monarchy. King Louis was pretty concerned by the threat of Philippe, and he sent Philippe on a fake mission to London, thinking that would cool the anti-monarchy fire that was growing in the streets. But the Bastille still fell on July 14th, 1789. Joseph had returned to London with Philippe, so he missed this terrifying and important moment in France's history. 
Philippe, realizing that his quote-unquote mission in London had only been a ruse to get him out of the country, spent his time in London with Joseph and the Prince of Wales partying, drinking, and attending concerts. Joseph got bored of this before too long, and he felt pulled back to France. He was not the most politically involved citizen, but he did have his ideals, and France was basically his adopted country. So he sailed back from London to France, and he stopped in the town of Lille to do a few fencing tournaments for money. And it was during this time that he actually came down with a severe case of meningitis, and he was laid up for six weeks. The citizens of Lille were all so sweet to him and took such good care of him that he actually composed an opera for their theater company. Upon his return to Paris, Joseph joined the National Guard, and somehow still found time to perform concerts, and was quickly promoted to captain. In 1792, he was put in charge of the first all-black regiment in Paris, dubbed St. George's Legion. The Legion, being an all-black one, was last in line for supplies and horses, and the efficiency of the group, not to mention their morale, suffered greatly. Joseph was not a martyr, nor did he expect his men to be, so he turned down an order by the Minister of War, Jean-Nicole Pache, to enforce the front, pointing out that their lack of people, ammo, and horses made it a suicide mission. Pache was pissed, and his henchman, Commissaire Dufresne, began to spread rumors that Joseph was spending the money that he was supposed to give to the army on himself, including buying stables of expensive horses. Joseph was brought before the Committee of Public Safety, where it was quickly discovered that Posh never gave him any funds for his troops to begin with, and Joseph was returned to his legion. Posh was later fired for charges of corruption. When Joseph finally returned to his regiment, he found that Pash had had the last laugh. Pash had broken it into pieces and sent a lot of his men to the West Indies, leaving Joseph with less than 100 men to defend the front line of France at Lille. On January 21st, 1793, Louis XVI was guillotined. Patch's replacement, General Dumouriez, a more moderate who, even though a war hero, was arrested by the National Convention for speaking out against the leaders of the attacks on the Bastille. Joseph was asked to escort the arresting squadron to Dumouriez's headquarters, but Joseph begged off, saying the horses needed to rest. The escort was handed over to a General Joseph D. Miakinski, and at breakfast the following day, a note arrived from Miakinski from Dumouriez, asking him not to arrest him, but instead to join with him and march upon Paris and save the queen who was still imprisoned. Miakinski was all about this idea and asked Joseph if he wanted to be a part of it as well, and Joseph, who had been a friend of the imprisoned Marie Antoinette, knew in his heart that he must support the revolution and not the royal society that had sponsored and courted him for so long. So Joseph took off on his horse to warn the city of Lille that Miazinski and Dumouriez were on their way, and when the two men arrived, Miazinski was arrested and guillotined, and Dumouriez escaped and defected to the Austrians, blaming it all on, quote, the famous mulatto St. George. Despite this loyalty to the revolution, Joseph's close ties to the aristocracy, plus his ongoing musical career, which brought him regularly in the company of royals, made him a suspicious figure in the eyes of the paranoid revolutionaries. The law of suspects made it okay for anyone to be arrested and held without cause or trial, and in 1793, Joseph was arrested with no charges and thrown into prison for 13 months. This was a terrifying time to be locked up with the threat of execution constantly hanging over his head as the terror was raging through Paris. Aptly named, the terror was a period of widespread executions and massacres throughout the city. Aristocrats' heads rolled all day long, with as many as 26 executions a day taking place. The less fortunate were murdered by frenzied mobs, sometimes being torn apart limb from limb. And at the end of the 13 months, the Committee of General Security finally ordered Joseph to be released. 
When he walked out of prison, he walked into a new France. His most loyal female fan, Marie Antoinette, was dead, as was Philip Orleans, Brissot, and countless others. But Joseph had one burning desire, and that was to return to his regiment and his men and continue the good fight. The Ministry of War stalled him for six months while Joseph barely made ends meet on a half salary until they reinstated his position. But when Joseph joined up with his regiment, he found that this was a bluff, as the regiment was now under the command of two colonels, Colonel Bouquet and Colonel Target. Colonel Target graciously agreed to step down from his post to allow Joseph back into that position, but Bouquet vowed to fight Joseph to the death for that position. So for a year, Bouquet fought to hang on to his new post and finally won. He had Joseph dismissed not only from the regiment, but from the entire army. Bouquet also ensured that part of Joseph's dismissal entailed the stipulation that Joseph could live anywhere in France as long as it was not in the vicinity of the regiment. So clearly Bouquet was worried about the loyalty of the men to Joseph. So Joseph was summarily discharged with no money or even a medal in honor of his service to France. Word traveled in those days, albeit slowly, but it still traveled, and the news of white people rising up to kill those who had kept them in poverty and misery reached Saint-Domingue, the French colony on Hispaniola, today Haiti. The enslaved people of the island took this inspiration and they launched a massive slave revolt. It was endless destruction and murder for months. Countless men, women, and children of both races were slaughtered, and the northern part of the island was burned to the ground. Joseph joined French abolitionist Leger Felicite Sothonax and 15,000 troops and sailed to Saint-Domingue to wipe out slavery once and for all. But when Joseph got there, he was immediately horrified at the amount of carnage and destruction that had fallen upon the island as furious enslaved people and frightened enslavers demolished homes, lands, and families. It was a chaotic revolt, and none of the standard practices of battle or wartime ethics were applicable. So Joseph realized that his mixed blood made him suspect to both sides and an ally to neither. So he returned to France, barely managing to escape with his life. Within two weeks of returning to France, Joseph had started a new orchestra. He was giving concerts that were considered some of the best in his career, but he was living in poverty as he had not been given a pension. He was stretched very thin, and then he received the news in June of 1799 that things in Haiti had taken a turn for the worse. The pro-French André Rigaud's army of mulattoes and the separatist Toussaint Louverture's blacks had launched into a gruesome battle known as the War of Knives. And this horrific news was too much for Joseph, whose life had been nothing but war, bloodshed, and prison the last few years. Joseph had been battling an on-again, off-again high fever along with an ulcer. He began to have issues with his bladder, possibly cancer, and he was in constant pain. Joseph tried his best to hide that anything was wrong until the torment became all-consuming. After a month of extreme suffering, he finally died at the age of 53 on June 10, 1799. His death certificate was destroyed in a fire, and all that we have left is the paperwork associated with the removal of his body. And it states that his corpse was removed from Rue Boucherat No. 13, the home of Nicolas du Hamel a former officer who didn't want Joseph to die alone in his tiny apartment. Today, the Rue de Chevalier Saint-Georges runs through the 1st and 8th arrondissements in Paris. My sources today were Wikipedia, Artaria Editions, and the Los Angeles Opera. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Joseph Boulogne and our last episode of the year. 
please join me on January 3rd, 2021, when we celebrate the birth and life of Anna Mae Wong, the first Chinese superstar. See you then. Thank you.